Hi, and welcome to the August edition of the EVJ podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. We have two interesting interviews for you today, based on equine metabolic syndrome. Ruth Morgan will first be discussing a case series of horses treated for this condition, followed by Sarah Smith, who has compared two in-feed oral tests designed to diagnose insulin resistance. Ruth Morgan previously undertook her medicine residency at Liverpool University before going on to carry out a PhD in cortisol dysregulation in equine endocrinopathic laminitis at Edinburgh University within the Queen's Medical Research Institute. Ruth's paper can currently be found within the Early View section on the EVJ website and is titled Treatment of Equine Metabolic Syndrome, a Clinical Case Series. Hi Ruth, thanks for joining us today. You've um been first author of a recent paper uh, looking at the treatment of equine metabolic syndrome. Can you start off by giving us a little introduction to the syndrome and tell us why horses and ponies may be predisposed to it? Yeah, sure. So equine metabolic syndrome is an incredibly complex syndrome, which we don't fully understand yet. Um, It's been defined by consensus in the equine literature as horses, um, ponies, donkeys that um, suffer from obesity, insulin dysregulation and a genetic predisposition. So by that, I mean mainly British native breeds, um, cobs and ponies. And um, with this combination of risk factors, they have an increased susceptibility to laminitis. Now, whether the actual presence of laminitis is in the definition or not is up for some debate, but certainly these horses have a a whole collection of risk factors which make them more susceptible to laminitis. And it's very similar to human metabolic syndrome, which is defined as obesity, insulin dysregulation and a genetic predisposition, which makes humans more susceptible to diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So other features which we might include later on when we get to understand more about the disease um, would be maybe dyslipidemia um, and leptin resistance, but we're still uh, learning. Um, We don't really know how many horses or ponies are affected. Um, We don't actually have any epidemiological data on uh, metabolic syndrome itself. So we just have to look at the components. Uh, Certainly we know that between 20 and 40 percent of um, horses and ponies in the UK and um, America are overweight or obese um, and hyperinsulinemia seems to affect up to about 25 to 30% of ponies. That's some data coming out of Australia. And we know that endocrinopathic laminitis, that's laminitis caused by other metabolic syndrome or Cushing's disease, is the most common cause of laminitis, accounting for almost 90% of laminitis cases seen. Um, So we don't really know um, the exact pathogenesis of it. Um, There's still a lot of research going on into the relationship between obesity and insulin resistance. Um, But we certainly know that uh, if you give a horse a sustained amount of insulin for a long period of time, they will develop laminitis. So we think that insulin dysregulation is the common factor there. Okay, so you looked at a case series of horses treated for the syndrome. What were your objectives in this study? Well, there's been a couple of studies. There's a couple of studies out there, um, work from Alex Dugdale and from my co-author, Cathy McGowan, um, that showed that you can take horses with metabolic syndrome and you can induce weight loss and improve insulin dysregulation in these ponies um, if they are kept in a residential, shall we call it a fat camp, um, and monitored very closely and their intake monitored and their exercise controlled. Um, And that was done in a very controlled hospital environment. Um, and they successfully lost weight and improved their insulin regulation. But that's not 
not real life. Um, and we wanted to see if we could uh, replicate these findings in horses that were kept at home with their owners. And we'd set up an outpatient clinic, um, an outpatient endocrine clinic, um, where uh, we saw metabolic syndrome cases. And we wanted to see if, if we sent them home with their owners with the correct advice and support, we could induce similar weight loss and improvements in insulin dysregulation that have been found in other studies. And to be included in this study, what inclusion criteria did they have to fulfil? So they really just had to have equine metabolic syndrome. As I defined previously, um, we assessed insulin dysregulation using a combined glucose insulin tolerance test. We assessed obesity based on body weight and body condition score. Um, and um, we took a full history um, regarding their laminitis and obviously um, looked for clinical signs and historical signs of laminitis. The only cases we excluded from this analysis um, for this particular um, study was um, horses with uh, Cushing's disease, pituitary pars intermediate dysfunction. Their insulin dysregulation is is fairly different from those with metabolic syndrome and we certainly manage them very differently so we excluded them from our analysis though they were seen in our outpatient clinic. Okay and how did you manage these cases? So the horses were brought into our clinic initially for their initial assessment had a complete history and clinical examination. Um, we placed an IV catheter and then we stabled them overnight um, and they were either fed and they were so fed soaked hay overnight and then a combined glucose insulin tolerance test was performed um, the next day and from that we got an idea of their insulin regulation and their level of obesity and we also spent a long time talking to the owners um, and getting a full history and management history and a feeding history and from that we could develop an individual diet and exercise plan tailored particularly to the need of the horse so there's there's no strict recipe that we would follow because every horse um, had to be managed separately um, and individually. So there would be key components that we would always follow. So, for example, making sure the owners were weighing any food that they gave the horse, any supplementary feeding, any, and any hay, um, cutting out any treats or snacks. Um, we really encouraged our owners to analyse the forage if they could, um, and we advised them to soak the hay, um, but not haylage. Um, and we tried to uh, increase the exercise as much as possible. Obviously, some of them had um, laminitis, which limited their exercise capacity, but we tried to manage that as much as possible. Um, and we had regular contact with the owners um, so that we could adjust the diet and exercise plan as the horse went along. And we constantly adjusted the diet so that we made sure we were keeping up with the weight loss. And the reason there's no recipe is that some of these horses were being managed extensively on um, large fields with no access to stabling. Some were being managed um, on full livery with no access to turnout. So um, we really have guiding principles. And then for each horse, um, we would um, tailor it exactly so that the owner could comply. Um, and then we invited the owners back for a reassessment and we repeated all of those tests um, and then um, looked to see in our statistical analysis whether we'd had an improvement um, in the insulin regulation and, uh, uh, and if we'd induced any weight loss. What kind of time course was this done over? So it varied. Um, it 
took uh, could take up to six months, but generally um, we saw the horses back at um, six weeks and then um, three months, um, and we'd see good improvement in that. But each horse was um, individual, um, and each owner um, had uh, particular requirements, and so the weight loss could be faster or slower depending on the horse. Um, I think the key is that it was sustained, um, and we kept it going over a period of time and altered it if the clients were struggling at all um, to comply. Okay. Did you encourage the owners to uh, assess the body condition scores themselves? And did you find that this um, encouraged them to stick to your guidelines better? Or Yeah, absolutely. We, um, we taught them how to use a weigh tape and we taught them to body condition score using the Carolyn Huntington scale out of five, um, which we find the easiest really to teach owners. Um, I think that really gave them ownership of the um, weight loss plan. Um, and they've shown certainly in human studies that um, really feeling like you have ownership of your weight loss um, helps a compliance. Um, and we also encourage them to take photos. Um, we took photos at the beginning um, and during our assessments and then objectively look at the photos to say if they could identify a change in the horse's body shape and body condition score. And I think that really, really helped. And the owners um, were really on board with it um, and, and got really involved. So you mentioned before about using the combined glucose insulin uh, tolerance tests. Could you talk us through how you might do this um, in practice at a yard and compare it to the Infeed oral glucose test, which a lot of us use? Yeah, so the, we chose the combined glucose insulin tolerance test because it's a really good measurement of insulin sensitivity. Um, it's really easy to do. The only technical bit is putting in an intravenous catheter. Um, so we would classically tell the owner to stable the horse overnight um, and feed it just soaked hay. So you've got a really low sugar input overnight. And then um, we place a, an intravenous catheter, ideally the night before, but certainly you can do it um, when you arrive in the yard. Um, and as we've shown in our study, it didn't really matter for the glucose, um, for the CGIT results, whether the horse was fed soaked hay during the test or not, um, as long as you keep it consistent between tests. So if you're testing once and you feed them soaked hay, you must feed them soaked hay on the second occasion if you retest. Um, and sometimes it can help to keep the horse a bit calmer, particularly if you're doing this first thing in the morning, which usually are, and all the other horses on the yard are being fed. Um, it's it's a bit difficult to, to manage the horse if you're not feeding it. So once the IV catheter is placed, we take um, uh, blood at time zero. And at that point, you would collect a, a serum sample for measurement of insulin. And you'd also use your handheld glucometer um, to get your baseline glucose measurement. And then immediately following that, you give 150 mg per kg of glucose. So we usually use 40 dextrose followed immediately by 0.1 international units um, per kilogram of insulin and it, insulin comes in various um, uh, uh, preparations but they all seem to work fairly effectively and then we collect blood um, and just it's a very very small amount of blood because you're just using a handheld glucometer um, and you collect it at one minute um, where you'll see a very, very high peak in the glucose because you've literally just given it. And then 5, 15, 25, 35, 45, et cetera, minutes. Um, and at each point, you can measure um, the, uh, the glucose um, immediately straight by the horse. So that's a really good advantage of the test because you've got the results there and then. Um, we would also take an insulin at 45 minutes. That really helps um, look at what the insulin is doing as well as the glucose. Um, and what you want to see is a, this big peak at one minute of glucose. And then you want to see 
um, a fairly rapid decline in the glucose levels. So normal horses, um, and that's based on standard bred and thoroughbred data, but um, it says that they should um, return to baseline glucose levels at 45 minutes. Um, so you could potentially truncate the test there um, and just do a 45 minute or 50 minute test. Um, we continued to 150 minutes. Um, we had the luxury of being in the hospital, so we could we could do that. And um, it also picks up your biphasic um, changes in your CGIT. So often horses will go actually below baseline if they're very insulin sensitive um, and then return to baseline um, a bit later. So um, so that's quite good to see. And it really gives you an idea of the the dynamics of the test. Um, and then you can plot an area under the curve. But really what you can tell the owners is there and then if it's insulin resistant or not. Um, I'm not sure we could say it's the gold standard. It's certainly more sensitive than basal measurements. Um, uh, more sensitive than just a basal fasted insulin, um, which still definitely has it pl- its place because if a horse is um, hyperinsulinemic uh, based on one a one-off sample, then then you have an answer really. Um, whereas um, often they're not, but you still still suspect insulin resistance. Then a, um, a dynamic test is better. Um, probably the ideal dynamic test is a euglycemic clamp or a minimal model analysis from frequent sampling, um, but that's really impractical uh, in the field. So I would suggest a CGIT. A lot of people are doing oral dynamic testing, so oral glucose or oral sugar tests, um, and they really have their place. They're really good, but they test something completely different. So they determine the postprandial insulin response, uh, and that includes the response of gastrointestinally-derived hormones, um, so the enteroinsulin uh, axis, rather than whole-body insulin sensitivity. Um, they've yet to be completely fully validated, and they can be quite variable. Um, so you just have to be aware of the variability, um, and that's introduced if you're certainly if you're feeding the sugar um then depending on the rate at which the horse eats it and also things like gastric emptying and um, absorption from the small intestine will affect your results and you're only measuring insulin um, but equally you have to measure basal insulin before you give the sugar and then um, and then two hours later so um, probably time wise it probably takes about the same time I suppose in an ideal world we'd do both and then you'd have your postprandial response and your whole body insulin sensitivity um, so I think there's a definitely a place for them both but I think consistency of the way you do the test and which test you do um, is probably the most important thing Okay, and what what kind of percentage of horses did you deem a success in your uh, treatment regime and how did you deem them a success? So we had um, over 90% of horses um, lost body weight. Um, That wasn't 100% because obviously when you increase exercise, um, uh, then you increase muscle mass and muscle is heavier than fat. So you don't always get a reduction in body weight, but we certainly saw... um, a reduction in body condition score in all of the horses. We also saw significant reductions in basal insulin, insulin at 45 minutes, um, and the time for blood glucose to return to baseline during a CGIT um, in in all the horses. So we were really pleased, and and that's really how we um, how we deemed the success. For each individual horse, there may have been times uh, at which, or sorry, final assessments at which they were still out with the normal so-called normal range for the insulin regulation 
um, measurements, uh, but there had been a significant improvement. And possibly there's some variability in breed. As I said earlier, CGIT measurements, um, uh, the normals have been generated from standardbreds and thoroughbreds, and potentially um, our horses and ponies that were all native breed ponies, really Shetlands and Welsh sections, um, they may well have been different in their uh, in their insulin regulation. But we want to see, and that's the beauty of, of retesting, is you really want to see a, an improvement in that horse so it's a really individual response um, and certainly we had excellent um, uh, owner satisfaction with the program. Did you find it harder to improve horses that were suffering from laminitis as well because they couldn't uh, exercise as much? So none of our horses um, had uh, truly active laminitis in the sense that they'd have to be travelled to the clinic so they weren't acutely painful. Um, but certainly some of them were not in full exercise because of previous laminitic episodes. And actually, um, this can be used to your advantage. So even though you don't have the advantage of the exercise, which is a really key component to most um, weight loss and insulin resistance plans, um, you can use the time when the horse isn't exercising to really kickstart the diet. So if it's on box rest, that is the time when you have absolutely uh, absolute control over its um, intake, um, and you can really restrict its intake quite um, quite um, strongly. And um, it's much more difficult. It's possible, but it's much more difficult to diet a horse that's grazing. Um, and so, actually, we can use that time uh, of box rest to our advantage um, to really kickstart start the weight loss. Um, but the key really is that these horses could go back to grazing. This is not a life sentence of no grass for a horse um, we just had to manage it really well and and look at the types of grazing and I think um, turnout is a really key aspect um, we want the horses to be moving around and foraging and exhibiting normal behavior um, one more thing to say is that um, insulin is not affected by acute laminitic episodes so it's not a stress hormone unlike ACTH so you can measure insulin resistance um, with a basal insulin when they are um, acutely laminitic um, if you if you wanted to. And with the exercise what kind of level and duration would you suggest is key? Well you want them to be what we would say to the owners you want them to be puffing and sweating otherwise they're not really burning any calories um, often we exercise our horses that are athletes um, at well below their um, maximum heart rate so they found in studies previously that a heart rate greater than 140 beats per minute um, is sustained um, induces insulin uh, improvements in insulin regulation so we're not talking about walking um, we're talking about you know getting them um, trotting cantering and, and sweating up so this can be really difficult you have to think outside the box certainly if you're um, dealing with Shetland ponies and things like that um, but we managed to get excellent compliance with our owners thinking of all sorts of um, weird and wonderful ways to exercise their horses uh, and their ponies and it, it was quite a lot of fun for all of them so really Really, you want them um, not just walking. You want them um, to increase their heart rate to at least 100 beats per minute if you can. Okay. So what would your take-home message be from this, this study? So I think this study shows that if you educate and support owners, um, you can induce weight loss and improve insulin resistance. And there are guiding principles that we would all use to induce weight loss. Um, so often people say 1.5% of body weight, and, and that's great. Um, and we can certainly build on those. But the real key is that 
we individually tailored uh, to each owner and spent a lot of time with the owner. And I think um, vets out in practice have a real advantage in that they know their owners well. Um, they know the environments that the horses are kept in and they can really look around the yards and, um, and, and come up with ideas for allowing the owner to comply. Um, and that's why we haven't kind of given a recipe um, and take home message that if we give the correct advice and we support our owners, then we can overcome the barriers to weight loss. So the WHO identified quite a few barriers to weight loss in humans, um, which I think are definitely echoed um, in horse owners. So a lack of knowledge of the dangers of obesity and how to induce weight loss, a lack of time, um, the views of the community. Um, all of those certainly come into play when we're talking to horse owners. Um, and that's why we need to really get them on board and educate them. Um, and certainly I, I think it should be um, something that we're always thinking of with um, with the number of horses that are obese at the moment. You know, if we put a horse on box rest for, say, a suspensory injury or something, are we also at the same time advising the owner about diet? And are we saying, you know, your horse is now no longer exercising, we need to reduce its intake and we need to make sure that we get on top of that before these horses go on to de develop um, equimetabolic syndrome. And I think the number of interventions, certainly in human medicine, is positively correlated with weight loss. So um, the more time you spend with your clients and the more um, uh, attention you give them and um, really listen to them. And if they're saying they, they can't um, get there to, to feed it six different um, hay nets a day, then you really, really need to listen to them and, and come up with a way of, um, of getting around that. Well, thank you for your time, Ruth. That sounds like sound advice we could all put into practice. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Sarah Smith has recently finished her medicine residency at the RVC and is currently working at the RVC equine practice. She is first author on a paper entitled Comparison of the in-feed glucose test and the oral sugar test. This can also be found on the EVJ website under the early view section. So Sarah, you've just completed a test comparing two tests to detect insulin sensitivity in horses and ponies, uh, looking at the in-feed oral glucose test and the oral sugar test. So could you um, first describe how to carry each of these tests out in ambulatory practice and tell us why you've chosen these two to compare? Yes, so both tests are based on the principle of giving the horse a bolus of oral carbohydrates and then taking a follow-up blood sample a period of time later to measure insulin concentration. Um, both tests involve withholding feed from the horse, often overnight um, or for a period of about eight hours. Um, and then the oral glucose test involves giving one gram per kilogram of glucose powder in a small feed of chaff. And the oral sugar test involves giving 0.15 mils per kilogram of corn syrup um, syringed by mouth. Then both uh, tests require a blood sample to be taken for the oral glucose test. This is set at 120 minutes and for the oral sugar test at 75 minutes. Um, those blood samples are used to measure the insulin concentration at that time. And then um, there have been previously uh, recommended insulin concentrations at which the animal is defined as having insulin dysregulation. Um, so for the oral glucose test, that would be more than 85 um, micro-international units per mil of uh, insulin, and uh, that's at, set at 60 for the oral sugar test. Um, 
we decided to compare these two particular tests um, because they're the most commonly used um, simple uh, tests of insulin dysregulation um, that are used in practice at the moment. Uh, the oral sugar test seems to be more common in America and the oral glucose test more common in the UK and Australia. And we were just interested to know whether the results of these two tests were comparable or not. So what did you think the results were going to be? What were your hypotheses about how they were going to compare? Uh, well, we were suspicious that the results wouldn't be comparable, um, which is why obviously we set about doing it in the first place. Um, and so we simply hypothesized that the two tests wouldn't predict the same number of horses as insulin uh, dysfunctional. Okay, so how did you carry out this study? Um, what was your study design? Um, it was an experimental randomized crossover study. So uh, we had 13 um, horses and ponies, eight ponies and five horses. They were all sort of a representative sample of the normal population. So they were clinically healthy native type um, animals. Uh, a few of the ponies had been previously laminitic, um, but they were all clinically healthy at the time and had been for at least six months prior to the study. Um, they were in an average body condition score and kept on normal British pasture. Um, so then they were randomized into two groups and they either had the oral sugar test or the oral glucose test performed first and then they had a two-day washout period and then they were crossed over and the uh, tests repeated again. Okay and none were tested for PPID, was that not a concern at all? Um, they weren't tested at the time of sampling but they had, if there were anywhere there was a clinical suspicion of PPID um, they would have been tested in the past and they'd have been excluded if they were positive. With the testing what variables did you analyse? Um, we looked simply at insulin concentration and glucose concentration um, and then uh, used these to look at the time to maximum insulin concentration, the maximum insulin concentration that was achieved, and then we looked at the area around, under the curve of the insulin concentration against time. Um, and the glucose and the insulin were measured using um, previously validated tests, so a radioaminoassay for the insulin and a colometric test for the glucose. Okay, so what were your pertinent results? Could you end up recommending one test over the other? Um, well, the oral glucose test has a, a higher maximum concentration of insulin. It takes a longer time to reach the maximum concentration of insulin, and there's a bigger area under the curve for the um, insulin concentration in the oral glucose test. Um, and the oral glucose test also has a wider individual variation of the insulin concentration and the time to the maximum insulin concentration were pretty big for both tests, but the um, variation seemed greater in the oral glucose test. Um, and the oral glucose test was identifying more animals as insulin dysfunction, dysfunctional than the oral sugar test. So um, based on this, it seems like the oral sugar test may be a more useful test because it has a smaller grouping of the time to maximum insulin concentration. The the time at which the animals are reaching a peak is closer together for the oral sugar test. So in theory, it may be more reliable. And also for the oral glucose test, um, the animals hadn't all reached their maximum insulin concentration at the end of the sampling time. Yeah, so when you did the oral glucose test, the maximum insulin concentration was often uh, longer than 120 minutes in horses and ponies, correct? Yes, yeah. exactly. So yeah. do you think we're underestimating the severity of the hyperinsulinemia? Um, yes, it's certainly possible. Okay. Um, and I think it makes it more difficult to use that test to compare between individual animals because about half of them, or slightly more than half, seem to have reached a peak before the end of the time 
and quite a few hadn't. Okay. Um, the maximum insulin concentration and the area under the curve, uh, as you said, were significantly greater in ponies compared to horses um, during both of the tests. So do you think we should have different cutoff values to define insulin resistance for ponies in comparison to horses? Yes, I think that's something that has been suggested in the past and is almost certainly necessary. Uh, we know that there's quite a wide breed variation um, between different uh, equine breeds in terms of insulin function. Um, and so probably using one cutoff value to compare all these different breeds or to look for insulin dysfunction in di many different breeds may not be practical. Um, but so far, no one has gone about setting these different um, levels for different breeds, which is certainly work for the future. Do you have that in mind for future work? Um, yes, it's something that would be very interesting to do, but um, it's not something that we've uh, organised yet. So there was a lot of variation in the time to maximal insulin concentration. Uh, why do you think this occurred? I think there's probably two aspects to that. Firstly, it's interesting that the carbohydrate content of the corn syrup is unknown at this stage. Um, we've asked the manufacturers, but they're not willing to <laughs> disclose that information. Um, and we're, we do have a sample being analysed, but we don't have the results yet. Um, but the other part of it is probably that the glucose powder is given in food. Um, and it's been shown in the past that meal size and starch content will alter the rate of gastric emptying. So it's likely that the gastric emptying with the glucose um, test is much slower within the syrup test. So um, that'll be why the peak um, time is delayed. So how do these two tests both compare to, say, a single basal insulin test or the dynamic testing, um, say, for usefulness in ambulatory practice? Um, I think they occupy a fairly useful middle ground, actually. A basal insulin test, although it's very easy to do, has been shown to not be very reliable in terms of identifying insulin dysfunction. Um, but these tests are easier to do than any kind of dynamic testing that involves giving insulin um, to the animal. Um, in terms of how they compare with results, there have been quite a few studies now trying to compare um, these tests to dynamic testing, um, but the results so far have been quite variable. Quite a few tests have suggested um, that these the oral glucose test or the oral sugar test compare favorably to the dynamic testing, um, but there have also been some studies suggesting that the results aren't comparable. So um, that's something to continue working on. And I mean, it, it ties in with the idea that really so far no one has identified the perfect test for insulin dysfunction. And could you recommend um, one of these tests over the other for using in practice? Um, yes, I, I suppose a part of that would probably be my uh, personal opinion, but the oral sugar test is certainly easier to do. It doesn't involve hoping that they're going to eat the entire um, glucose meal, which some of them are a little bit reluctant to do. You just syringe the sugar in and you're done. Um, it's in terms of a practice set, it's a shorter period of time to wait to take the second blood sample. But also because the results, um, because the peak of insulin concentration is more tightly grouped with the oral sugar test, in theory, the results should be more reliable. Okay, thank you. So would you say that was your take-home message or do you have another for us? Um, yes, I think the fact the results of the two tests aren't equivalent um, and that there's a wider variation in the oral glucose test and so the oral sugar test may be more reliable is certainly my take-home message. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you. Well, that's all for today. Thank you for listening and we hope you'll join us again next time.